Welcome back, everyone, to episode 17 of Making Waves, our Women's World Cup series. And it is the final episode of Making Waves, as we have just seen the final of the 2023 Women's World Cup. And we have seen Spain triumph over England by a single goal to nil in a packed Stadium Australia in Sydney. And Laz, it was a great Women's World Cup final, wasn't it? Oh, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. A game fitting the type of tournament that it was. It was a brilliant game. Brilliant game. And look, there have been some exciting games in this Women's World Cup, but I'll contend that that's probably the best quality women's game that we've seen uh, from a purely aesthetic football point of view. The drama and the football that was played in the Australia-France quarterfinal was just dramatic. That was really dramatic, but this was just an enjoyable watch and it was just brilliant to see. And I don't think anybody can begrudge Spain winning the final because they were the dominant team and absolutely pretty performance by Spain all over the park. Yeah, can't argue with that. And I think England were lucky to only be 1-0 down. Totally agree with you. A large part of the game and obviously the result as well. Spain could have been 2 or 3 up at halftime. And then you have the penalty as well. Easy. And for mine, I think outside of Lauren Hemp hitting the crossbar, England didn't really trouble cut the goal. And there wasn't too many chances that I thought that England are getting back into it. Mm. Yes, mm. they had periods where they were on top. They had more of the ball and more of the territory, but mm. not really many saves that the Spanish keeper had to make. Not as many clear-cut chances as that um, uh, Hemp chance. Uh, there were a couple toward the end there. Mm. But I, I think... Uh, Spain were just absolutely brilliant, to be fair. I think it was a very dominant performance. And the way that they moved the ball, in part, to actually play out of trouble, they were so comfortable with the ball. Some of the passages of play were just brilliant. And, you know, people want to begrudge Tikitaka. That's actually a real Tikitaka, I thought. Tikitaka with purpose. Absolutely. Sometimes it breaks down into being a little bit of a snooze fest, but not tonight. Mm. Not tonight. It was mm. great football and so many passages of play you mentioned coming out from the back as well as in the final third. Spain, really, if they took their chances, could have won this game 3 or 4-0, perhaps more. And yep. it shows that, really, they have been the best team this tournament. And even going back to match day one, we said that they didn't get out of first or second gear. They mm. left so much more in the tank. And I think as the tournament went on, we did see that we saw their level go up and up and up, with the exception, of course, of the Japan result. But we saw the real Spain. We saw their full potential in the latter stages of this tournament. And I think were the winners. Yes, you can begrudge Jorge Vilda and some of the uh, the stories that come out pre-tournament and during the tournament. And you still see that amongst the players in the in the full-time celebrations where there was a big dance huddle and everyone had their back to Jorge Vilda almost ignoring him and he was dancing in the middle by himself. It's amazing that Spain have been able to overcome the adversity, the 12 players that are not with the squad. Maybe not all 12 would have been there, but certainly a fair few of them. And it's also scary to think how good they would have been if they were here. Nathan, a lot of those players, though, weren't did agree. So I don't know. I think it was maybe half that I've read had actually said, "Look, we're you know we're available for team selection," but their form wasn't. It didn't warrant selection based on what Vildor actually said or select. You know, so it's an interesting point with regards to that. Now, a lot has been made of this situation, right? But, you know, part of me says it's a smoke screen, but no, that's not true. <laughs> right. <laughs> Look, um, there's obviously an issue there with between coaching staff and players, but Vilda, I can see, like, from some of the footage and just watching some of it now as well as part of the celebrations as well with the players when the trophy was lifted and all that kind of stuff. So, look, um, 
either way, either way you break this story down, if he's resented so much by the players and that the players have actually performed because of their own professionalism, well, kudos to the players. If um, the players have yeah, acted on their, uh, you know, on their own bat, brilliant. If the coach has managed to you know, deal with the situation and still extract the, the best possible performance out of these players, given the circumstances, well, then he's a greater man, you know, greater person manager than people would think. So, um, and I recall, you know, Joe Brennan uh, in our preview episode of the Spanish group um, saying, look, it's not quite clear exactly where the issues are. People know there are issues, but where, what the degree of the issues are and where it lies is Incredible. Now, I think I suspect that it's a, you know about the support that the federation probably gives the, to the players. That's my own personal take on it. I've you know I have done a little bit of research on it, but there's nothing really definitive or substantial that's come out. Um, I think more will come out now that the tournament's over. Yes, and yes. that the and that the World Cup has been won. But yeah, it'll it'll it's just a fascinating story. And like we've said before, I'd love to see a Netflix doco on it. Because it's a great. I think case. there's a whole host of teams that yeah. would be amazing to have a a documentary like that surrounding them from this tournament. And yeah, it's great to see the players have that laser sharp focus and that mentality that issues seemingly are plenty. They're able to put them to one side and come together as a real team. Yeah, and deliver a deserved World Cup win. It can't be all on the players though, right? It's got to be the technical team and the support staff. Like it's there's got to be a, a combined effort here. You just can't. I mean, look, Spain's got crazy talent. We know that, right? But and Vilda's been through the system with the RFEF. So, you know, there's obviously, I think he might be a bit of a go-between between between Federation players, staff. Obviously, you know, you can see that the staff celebrated amongst themselves and then the players celebrated amongst themselves. But that's quite common as well. Normally, the players will go and gravitate to their fellow players because of what the gravity that they've achieved. And then they'll go acknowledge the staff, right? So, yeah, anyway, interesting dynamic nonetheless. Yes, but in any case, I think if there are some players that want to get rid of the manager, it's going to be very difficult to try and achieve that now, given what's happened tonight. And as much as the players deserve credit, so does the coaching staff, Mm. being able to deliver a tactical plan and everything that goes with that to deliver this World Cup for Spain, the first ever World Cup. It was their first ever final, their first ever semi-final, and they've only gone and won the whole thing. Talk to me about the goal, Laz. A great strike from Olga Carmona. Look, an amazing strike. An amazing strike, right? Um, Just a brilliant passage of play. Yes, the turnover happens in midfield when bronze was ahead to try and actually make something to create something, right? Um, just swarmed by three players um, and, and dispossessed of the ball and then the ball quickly moves out to the left and you could see that run, like we're watching on TV and we could call it that run that uh, Camona was making. Uh, Bruso just couldn't stay with her and first time shot, you know, we all got out of the seat because it was just taken so well. Yeah, and a heads-up play, knowing that Lucy Bronze was out of position to send the ball straight away to that left flank where the gap would be. It's really smart football once again from Spain and great overlapping run from Carmona and an arrowed shot into the side netting just out of reach of Mary Earps and just inside the post as well. A great goal and her second goal in the latter stage of this tournament. A great goal in the semi-final too. Textbook goal, Nathan. Textbook goal. That's what we try and teach our girls to finish it with actually like you know always aim for the back post if you can um yeah just a great finish and you know you would easily show that to boys and girls and you know when you're trying to 
inform them as to how they should hit a ball, strike a ball and placement. And it was just brilliant. It was just brilliant football all around. Masterclass of the Spanish midfield as well, by the way. They were dominant and it was just a brilliant, dominant display. Yeah, very much so. And I think England, they tried things. They switched up the formation. They ended up putting Millie Bright up at striker. Mm-hmm. And time and time again, they just came up with nothing. And Spain had them well marshaled. I think it might be one of those cases where he could have been, been playing for hours without a goal. They look comfortable at the back, particularly Spain. Mm. No, I agree. I agree. Talk to me about England, though, and where the game was lost, where you think the game was lost. And was it a case of just the heavy leagues? Because it's interesting to note that the teams that played in the Wednesday semifinal seemed to struggle. Yeah. That extra, that extra day kind of did help both Sweden and Spain in, in this case. It looked it in both games. We'll come on to the bronze medal match in a bit. But both winning teams this week did seem to be a lot fresher in the leagues. They seem to be a lot more energetic. England, yes, this team has been playing a lot of minutes together. And there's a lot of times that you think, geez, okay, she's out on her feet here. She needs to come off. There was a few players in that bracket. But really, for mine, I think it is just a case that Spain were too good. And we always thought throughout this tournament that England, they're gettable. Yep. You can be, you can really attack this England side. And they do have a bit of a soft underbelly at this tournament, which I suppose comes into the players missing, the likes of Mead and Kirby and um, Lee Williamson as well. Mm. I think it was just one step too far for England to go and win a trophy for the second year in a row. They were shown up by a better team tonight. And Bon Marti had another great performance in midfield. Abayera might have been best player on the pitch tonight. There's, mm. there's a bit of a hot feel for that. Toss up between those two, I think. Mm. And I think generally England were just outplayed. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Serena Vigman, full credit to Serena Vigman. Um, first manager to take two nations to a um, World Cup final, a consecutive World Cups. And also, I mean, an amazing coaching record, right? So has won the last two Euros with the Netherlands and England respectively and then took uh, the Netherlands and England to the subsequent World Cup finals. Um, yeah, consecutively. So amazing coaching performance and uh, interesting to note that um, there has been discussion about Serena Wiegmann possibly taking over the English men's gig, which I find very interesting, but should South when Southgate leaves, but we'll have that conversation another time, I think. I think so. I think Serena Wiegmann, if she wants England's men's job, then she should absolutely be on the shortlist to get it. I would tend to say that she should remain as a star of the women's game as okay. maybe alongside Emma Hayes as the best managers in the women's game. And that record in the last six years or so speaks for itself. What she's been able to achieve with those sides is amazing. And she is contracted for the Lionesses until the end of the next World Cup. Mm. So after two failed World Cup finals, Serena Vegan will definitely see it as unfinished business. And there was mm. also rumours of the US women's team sniffing around Serena Vegan as well to take over from Vlatko. Now, I think that's a very difficult thing to achieve. And I don't necessarily see Serena Vegan as wanting to get out of England. Hey, listen, you promised no USWNT talk on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's not fair. <laughs> but- uh, aside from the fact that I'm sure there are heaps of uh, US women's national team supporters at the final today. But then, nonetheless, right, nonetheless, and a cheap <laughs> dig at our American friends. You can't um, help yourself, can you? No, I can't. And, and I'll tell you this. <laughs> Usually anecdot- it's me. Anecdotally, um, we were at the FIFA Fan Fest yesterday afternoon. And uh-huh. uh, we did come across a lot of Americans in town. So that says something. 
Now, with regards to that, interesting you mentioned the USWNT. Jill Ellis recently, a couple of days ago, said that Tony G should be headhunted for that job. We'll get onto that later. I know you've probably got feelings, you know, an opinion around Tony G. I think everyone does at this point. Yes, but um, anyhow, we'll move on. Are we? That's a topic for a a later time. Are we done with the final, or do you want to keep going with the final? Because it was a great game of football. As a standalone game of football, it was brilliant and probably the most enjoyable games of football uh, in this Women's World Cup. What are your thoughts? I mean, there's a whole host of games that you can put up as enjoyable. We've seen a few of them ourselves, and I think it's a great way to cap off this tournament. A Mm. great final, a wonder win for Spain, and I think that puts this tournament off in a nice little box with a bow on top as a a great tournament. And I think largely, uh, I saw some concerns over the refereeing performance tonight, but particularly I think Serrani Paraluelo, should she have got a second yellow card? I don't know. No, I think so. Check on the penalty take too long. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Way too long. Way too long. I don't know what they were looking at for so long. Same referee from the semi-final Australia-England, yeah, from memory. I believe I'm it was. I'm not sure, to be honest. Yep. I believe it was. And I wasn't impressed with uh, with her last game that I saw. I think it was the Australia-England semi-final, but nonetheless, um, it didn't really matter. The only really contentious issue was the delay of the uh, VAR and how long that took. As soon as you saw a particular angle, it was handball. You couldn't not give it. You had to give it. The only factor that I could possibly think of as to why they were looking at it for so long is because there was such a close proximity between the two players. Was It might have been one of those discussions where was there enough time to react and get the hand out of the way? For my clear penalty. I'm not arguing that point at all. I'm just trying to get myself in the VR room to think why it took as long as it did to make that decision. Is it because it's a World Cup final, so much on the line, you give the penalty when it's not quite a penalty, Spanko 2-0 game's over? Spot on. That's what it was. Double check, triple check, quadruple check. Yeah, that's what it was. Otherwise, there's no reason not, you know, you had to give it. You had to give it. And there was one angle in particular from the other side, right? Um, not the um, the normal broadcast side, but from the other side, where it's even more apparent. So if they, you know, they should have shown the referee that footage to begin with when she asked for it to be replayed. Maybe, if, you know, maybe the control truck couldn't um, send that uh, across. I'm not sure. But either way, based on what we saw and what the referee was seeing at the time, there's no reason why it should have taken that long. Indeed. Indeed. And the on-field referee saw it about 20 times before making that decision, but arrives at the right one. What did you make of the penalty or of the actual penalty take itself in the safe? I thought it was a poorly taken penalty by Hermosa, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Poor penalty. Some discussion. Did Mary Earps have a a foot on the line when she saved it? Yeah, I thought about that myself, actually. I saw that and I thought, ooh, why haven't they called that one back? No, the camera angles don't look on it favourably at all, Mm, but mm. I'm sure it would have been VAR check. It would have had to be, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, but geez, it was very close. If, if it, you know, I, I thought it was going to be retaken, to be honest. Mm. But it was a poor penalty. Well read by Mary Herbs, should say. And her reaction was fantastic. All the, the effort and Jeffin to <laughs> rally the rally the troops. <laughs> and well, she was effing and Jeffing after the goal. Yes. Yeah, that she was. And thought at that point, Spain, they had missed a couple of chances prior to that. They had the penalty saved. Is the, is it going to get away from them in the end? Uh, not to be in actuality, but there was a chance there for England to get back into it and Spain would have been ruining their missed chances. Yeah. Can we talk about Katakoi or Katakoi? Yeah, let's do it. it. Right. Joe Brennan mentioned her in the preview episode that we did. That's just an amazing story. International debut in the round of 16 at this tournament. Barcelona's second or third choice goalkeeper. <laughs> 
I mean, what else is there to say, really? Yeah. You know, her, um, yeah, the World Cup final is her fourth cap. <laughs> I mean, in such what, a vital position as well. This is not like a fullback or a, a midfielder where there's two others that can cover. It's the most criticised and the most pressure cooker position on the pitch. And, and, and what a uh, performance tonight. Yeah, fantastic. And she was great in the previous rounds as well. If she had started the tournament, perhaps she would have been in contention for Golden Glove. Mm, yeah. Did you want to go through the bronze medal playoff now or do you want to go through the highlights of the tournament and like what we thought? Let's do the bronze medal playoff. Okay, let's go. What did you make of it? I mean, Sweden 2, Australia nil. Could have been more for Sweden. It just looked like an Australia team that were very much out on their feet. It looked as if there was only 14 players who played more than half an hour at this tournament. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. And number 14, Claire Polkinghorne, is only in that 14 because Lana Kennedy was out of the last two matches. It's a fair result. There's no doubt about it. Um, with regards to Australia and Kennedy missing, do you think that had Kennedy been fit, the outcome of the semi-final would have been different? I don't think so. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't think so. Because, because look, you know, your central defenders combination is always and, and Hunt and Kennedy did form up a really good partnership there. Yeah, I think maybe England don't score three, mm. but I still think they would have gone through to the mm. final. And judging of what we've seen, not just from the defense, but the rest of the team, they've been out on their feet well before yep. this bronze medal match. Agree. And we mentioned it after the France quarterfinal, is the lack of rotation going to catch up with the Matildas? And it, and lo and behold, it did. And in this game, in particular. Yeah, certainly. And it just does leave this little bit of a negative taste in the mouth regarding Australia because, yes, it's great to finish fourth. I think if you went down the street and asked people pre-tournament, would you take fourth place? Most people would say, yes, I'll take it. And particularly after the Nigeria game, I think everyone would take it. But to finish the tournament in this manner, back-to-back defeats, an overall record of three wins, one draw, and three defeats... I think, yes, the Matildas have done fantastic to get to that point and they inspired the nation and everything that goes along with that. But there is a little bit of a a downward slope at the end of the tournament. And I think a lot of the feeling is going towards a dugout, which we may come on to very soon. But I can't begrudge any of the players. They tried. Oh, look. They they tried their guts out the entire tournament. And particularly the bronze medal match, they Mm. really were struggling to get anything going, partly because Spain was so good defensively. Not Spain. Partly because Sweden Sweden was so good Mm. defensively. And I think down to tactics as well. For mine, the difference was in the dugout. Nobody can begrudge the players' efforts across the whole tournament. There were players that did make mistakes and every player makes mistakes the same way that, you know, referees make mistakes. And unfortunately, at this level, mistakes get punished. That's what happens in international football, right? So now the vitriol and things like that that has been thrown at some players has been unacceptable as far as that's, you know, that's concerned. But where you are able to question a player's application is, uh, you know, why do certain things happen, right? Um, Could they have made better decisions? And it all came down to decision-making, but also fatigue because, yes, they were fatigued. There's no doubt about it, right? You look at, and it's an interesting question, and you mentioned the bench and we'll obviously come on to that. But Spain used 22 of their 23 players. Sweden used 22 of their 23 players. England didn't use that many more players. And Australia didn't use that many more players either. Mm. So there's obviously a philosophy there, right? Now, the question is, where is the, why is the depth, both in England's case and Australia's case in particular, not there? Or is there no confidence in the actual players that are in the on the bench and they're just there to be another, you know, a B squad in training 
right? Where, you know, where this issue arises, there's you've got to have, you know, faith in whoever you pick. So what would have happened if we had 11 injuries? Yeah. I mean, I mean it's an it, extreme hypothetical. <laughs> yes, but, but it's, it's something that needed to, needs to be answered. because It needs to be answered, right? Because what we've seen at this tournament is mm. a whole host of players that clearly the management team doesn't trust. Otherwise, we would have seen them for much longer. Correct. Or so, at all. To, to have essentially, aside from Sam Kerr and Paul Kilhorn, the same side effectively play seven games in a month is a is is a fair whack. It was always going to catch up with them, right? So you've got to blood these new players in, or you've got to actually give. And I would have rather they actually said, you know what, in the third and fourth, you know, you, the worst you're going to come is fourth. Which we did anyway. We did anyway. So why don't you just put these (laughs) people on that haven't had much time, much game time, give them a run and let the, you know, the the poor girls who've, uh, you know, played for so long, give them a rest. And if you need to bring someone on, bring them on, right? Having said that, I thought Carpenter had a really good game yesterday as well for Australia. I thought she was really getting up forward, putting in the, the crosses that we ex- normally would expect, right? So yeah, credit to her for coming back from the um, from the semifinal. Yes, and she's one of the players that's been copying a lot since Wednesday that you alluded to. Mm. And look, I think it's okay to criticise. It's okay to point out mistakes when they happen, but there is a line. And yep. obviously, it's been across the media the last couple of days. Plenty have gone over that line. And some people are just out there looking to, I think, either get in the paper or get into someone's stories because some of the Correct. stuff Correct. that goes on people's Instagrams and Twitters and whatever else is beyond ridiculous. So great to see Ellen Carpenter have a good game. Perhaps one of not too many that had a great game in a Matilda shirt on Saturday. But look, I think Sweden definitely did deserve their third place medal. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. The goal from Maslani was fantastic. Absolutely. You know, absolute banging goal. Mm. Top finish. Top finish. Absolutely brilliant finish. Took it well, really well. It was a great goal. And it's interesting, Laz, we were talking about sort of the size of the draw coming into the knockout phase. Mm. And we sort of eyed up the prospect of England, Australia, France, uh, Brazil, Germany, even though they didn't go through. But it was the New Zealand side of the draw that took home the major prizes and won the decisive games. I think uh, maybe Japan would have done pretty well on the Australian side of the bracket as well. How do you explain the USA? That's the one exception. <laughs> How do you explain the Netherlands? No. Um, no, you're right. They, they got that's right. half of the course. Yeah. No, that's right. Look, the semifinal. Perhaps slightly more than par. Mm. Yeah. The semifinalists, you know, proved that, um, you know, the, the New Zealand side of the draw was the, was the strong side in this case. Which if you told me that pre-tournament, I probably wouldn't have believed you. No, no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But look, it's it's interesting that, you know, you've had, uh, it's just been a fascinating tournament, right? And it's interesting that that's played out with regards to the third and fourth playoff and the uh, and the final that the teams have played on the Wednesday here in Australia. Um, both suffered, but yeah. yeah. Any more Matildas uh, wash up that you want to talk about from the Sweden game before we review the tournament as a whole and, Get on to what you'd like to, you know, what you'd like to think of as far as uh, future is concerned. I think that's it from the third place buff on my front. So we, okay. we can definitely talk about uh, Mr. Gustafsson in a bit. Mm-hmm. Sure, no problem. Um, but congratulations to Swin for finishing third, and congratulations to the Tillies for finishing fourth. And uh, yeah, well, we should say congratulations to España for w- winning the um, winning the World Cup. And thank God that football is not going to its supposed home. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, England. Well done. Really good campaign by the Lionesses as well. So where should we move to, Nathan? I think it's time for us to hand out some awards, Laz. 
they did that at the trophy celebration post game mm-hmm. tonight, and I think we have some making waves awards of our own to give mm-hmm. out. Sure, and we can start off with some uh, smaller ones. Okay, goal of the round across the bronze medal in the final. Before the final start, I thought it's going to be hard pressed to see you know someone better the Aslani goal, but I think we saw a better goal than the Aslani goal last yes. tonight. So I'm going to yeah, go. I'm with you. I'll go Kadmona. Seconded on this side as well, and goal of the tournament. Okay. Sam Kerr by a whisker. Yep. Yeah. Just. Mm. Who gets your honorable mention? Linda Caicedo against Germany. I was going to say Marta Cox. Yeah. Lovers, France. Free kick. Fantastic Abs- strikes. <laughs> Absolutely great free kick. So, yes, but um, no, Sam Kerr is definitely the uh, golden tournament for mine. And I don't think anybody can argue that. No. The fact that she picked it up inside her own half, dribbled at 30 yards, still so far from goal, and just smacked it in into the top corner to beat what who is the best goalkeeper in the world. And the official Golden Glove winner is worthy of goal of the tournament, I think. No, I agree. I agree. Golden ball, Laz. Who gets your player of the tournament? I think they got it right. I think Bob Mati is the player of the tournament. I think so as well. We've agreed on all three of these. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> I did say earlier in the piece that she was going to win the Golden Ball. Yeah, and I think there's a few players who came close, mm-hmm. but Bob Marty, for mine, stands alone. No, I agree. At, at the top of the tree. I agree. Laz, we have prepared each mm-hmm. a team of the tournament, an 11, and a manager. Yep. Now, we're going to go through these. Yes. I've got my list in front of me here. Yes. And I'm sure we're going to differ here. I think we will. The backpackers are looking for a disagreement. Okay. Well, I think we dis- <laughs> I think we are going to kick it off because I disagree with the golden glove. So my goalkeeper is Musovic from Sweden. Same. Okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah. For mine, it was whoever came out on top in the bronze medal match for yeah. the golden glove for mine. I think Katakoy would have uh, actually gotten my golden glove had she started the, uh, the tournament. That's a fair shout. And you can't really give Golden Glove or best player to an early exit from the tournament. No. But Spencer from Jamaica mm. no, is in consideration as well, I think. Yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. I have gone to 3-5-2. I've so gone from back four. So, so yes. this is where we're going to have diff- you know differences of opinion. So my back three. Uh, Amanda Listed from Sweden, Irene Paredes from Spain, and Alex Greenwood from England. Okay. My defence, I have Greenwood. I have Illistead, but I think I'll let the heart roll ahead a little bit here. I've put in Claire Hunt and Steph Catley. I have them both. I've got them both as honourable mentions. So um, I've got uh, right wing as, uh, uh, you know, wing back because it can go 5 3 2, but 3 5 2. Uh, Lucy Bronze on the right. I've got mm-hmm. Olga Carmona on the left. And midfield three of Bomati. Um, Ellen Rubinson from Sweden and Jennifer Hermosa. My midfielders, I didn't necessarily choose ones that are suited to go out on the right or on the left. I just picked a midfielder mm-hmm. and I've gone for Abayera mm-hmm. and Bamati. Mm-hmm. And I put Georgia Stanway in here. It was my flip of the coin between Stan- yes. Stanway and Hermosa. <laughs> I've got room for Jenny Hermoso as well. Yep. And I've also stuck in Jill Rod. Of course you have. No, but that's fair enough, yes. right? That's fair enough. <laughs> I get that. For the I goals, she scored. She's uh, racked up a fair few. Yep, yep. So um, my front two, mm-hmm. Alessia Russo, even though she was substituted at halftime tonight, and 
as I better well off because you've got to put the young player of the uh, of the tournament in there. Honorable mention, though. I was going to say someone else, but I'll say that for later in my honorable mentions. Hmm. I would suggest that you have to put the golden boot winner into your team of the tournament. I thought about that too, but look, the golden boot, there's only one goal difference, right? And I've got the runner up. So, <laughs> is that you saying, oh, yeah, box ticks? That'll do. That's right. <laughs> Uh, yes, I've got Miyazawa up front. As uh, even though she didn't play striker as myself, yeah, striker. and and that's why I didn't put her as striker because she doesn't play striker. She's a you know mm. out on the flank. So no, nah, she's why. a forward. She's a forward, but yeah, she's not a central striker. She's like Rashford, <laughs> right? Oh, so now, no, sorry, no, don't, I, don't bring I, them up. Don't bring I, them up. I, I had I had to throw a man new reference in there just to you know, you know Nathan a little. <sighs> so there you go. It's okay. It's okay. Newcastle United didn't win that, you know, yesterday either. So oh, this is not a Premier League show, Laz. No, we know. The next for episode. A, for the next episode. Whenever that comes out. Which won't probably. be a Premier League episode, but anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> um spoiler alert. So um yes, so that's my um three five two. Mm-hmm. So Illustead, Paredes, Greenwood, Bronze. Bombati, Rubinson, Carmona, Hermoso, uh, Alessio Russo, and Paraguayo. Very good. And my team, Muzovic, Greenwood, Illustet, Catley, Hunt, Abayera, Bonmati, Stanway, Rod, Hermoso, and Miyazawa up front. And in the dugout, Laz, yep. we've both gone for Tony Gustafsson. No, we have not. No, we haven't. So, have you gone Serena for? Serena I've gone for Borja Vilda. Very good. Yeah, I think that's fair. Given the contentiousness of what's occurred throughout the tournament, to manage to do this, pull this feed off, you've got to have some medal about you as well and some technical nows. And But look, definitely a special mention to Serena Vigman, no doubt. Um, but my special mentions, my almost made it was Kaysado, mm-hmm. Mary Fowler, yep. Aslani, Catley and Hunt. And Mackenzie Arnold. Yeah, very good. I can echo all those. The ones that were in your team and not mine are on my honourable mentions and the players you mentioned there that I hadn't already also. I'd also like to throw in Lindsay Horan. I know, US women's team again. But for the time that the US were with us at this tournament, she was by far and away their best player. Yeah, I don't know if I would have... There were better midfielders than Horan. I'd say Wendy Renard as an honourable mention. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. And um, I think Gurma had a better tournament than... than uh, Haran, even though I think going forward, defense. Lindsay Haran was anything and everything the US really offered. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Um, fair, fair, but, honor, fair honor to mention there, Nathan. But lucky to even get a mention because I only played four games. Yeah, but look, um, to be fair, they're, you know, they are only, like you said, they only played in four games, right? Considered one goal. So but they didn't score enough. That they didn't. Yeah. Uh, a couple other players on my list. I had uh, Ona Batio. Yeah. I think she deserves yeah. a mention. Yeah, definitely. Agree with that. And Hasegawa as well. Had a great yes. tournament. Yeah, I agree. Agree. Uh, I'm sure there's a whole host of other players that had fantastic tournaments that we haven't mentioned, but it just goes to show the level of football that we've seen. And particularly as well, I think, with the young players. Yeah. Paraluelo, yeah. Linda Caicedo, Barry Fowler. Yep. In no the way. absence of some of the more experienced or high-profile players at this tournament who mm. haven't quite hit the heights, it's been the youngsters who have really shown everyone up and shown what they can do. So it's been great viewing on the pitch and the birthings of many stars, I think, for women's, for women's football. Totally agree with you, Nathan. Well said. No, 100%. Shall we head back to the home country Indeed. and talk about the Matildas? Indeed. And where to from here? Sure. <clears throat> Well, to the, Paris Olympics, to the Paris Olympics, hopefully. Yes, qualifiers are the immediate future. 
three games in Perth, which we would hope are to be fairly straightforward and a Paris Perth awaits. Should be good crowds over in Perth when they do roll around in October mm-hmm. because I've seen some questions going around from new followers for the Matildas. When do they play next? How often do we get to see them? And for those lucky enough to be over in Perth, then uh, it's not too far away. And you'll see them three times in October. Mm. Which makes up for the Matildas not playing in Perth this tournament. Yeah, no, it's a, that's a good bargaining chip, I think. Mm. And Perth's luck, well... Awesome. Get out there and support the Matildas. But will Tony Gustafsson still be in the dugout, Lars? And should he be there? Okay. The answer to the first question is yes. The answer to the second question is I'm not sure still. Hmm. Jury's out. Look, it's hard to say. It's hard to say that because they finished top four in the world. However, and look, you know, this being a host nation is a little bit tricky as well at times because generally you don't play qualifiers or you don't play qualifiers as you're a host nation. So you're playing, you're relying on a lot of friendlies. The quality or the caliber of friendlies that Australia played in the preparation to this tournament, playing all the top 10 nations, other top 10 nations was sound, pretty good, happy with that, no problem. You're charged with getting or creating further depth in, in the team to be able to rely on them and call upon them should you need to in this tournament. I think there was a need to, but that call wasn't made enough or at all. So that's where I think, hey, what are we looking at here um, from a depth point of view? Tactically, uh, there were a couple of times where I think it was left wanting, but that happens to all coaches except for Pep Guardiola. At this point in time, right? It's happened to him in the past, but but um, look, I think there were times where games called for change, right? Change of personnel, and the changes weren't made quick enough. And he acknowledged that in particular after the Nigeria game. But his proviser was well. In our review, we said that uh, you know we made the changes at the right time, and that affected the outcome when in the last eight minutes of normal time. So well, they lost anyway. Yeah, exactly. So look, one thing I did like yesterday, and I think he's learned to listen there, is that the changes were made a little bit earlier. And was it, or was he just being courteous because it's a well, bronze then, medal match? Then, if you're going to be courteous, replace the whole eleven. Because mm. you you know you're on a hiding to nothing anyway. Like I said, you, the worst you're going to finish is fourth. Why not just say you know what we've got the Olympic uh, qualifiers coming up. We need to um, we need to get you know some players uh, some exposure to international football. Why not take this opportunity? A third and fourth playoff. People say, look, it's not important. Well, it is and it it is important. However, you can use the opportunity to blood other players through. So why not do that? They're going to give a good account of themselves because they want to be picked for the next time that they play or the next time they're called up. So give them an opportunity to prove their worth. That said, I think Tony G did get it wrong in the semifinal. I would not have started Sam Kerr, which we discussed. I don't know what you, you, you know, you've said it before. I think you agree. You could say why, but you would have made the same decision. Um, and I think that there needs to be plan Bs and Cs. That is a strategical thing and a tactical thing. But the players need to take it upon themselves, right? And this is where the bone of contention is with the players. And it's not a big one. But the irony is, is that, yes, we, you know, Sam Kerr was really tried hard when she came onto the field each time she played. However, we played, Australia played more effectively going forward without having to rely on Sam Kerr. Australia defeated the Olympic champions without Sam Kerr, irrespective of how bad they were, out of form they were, or what issues they had with their federation, or whether they're down to, who knows what happened with Canada. Point is, 
is that Australia, when Sam Kerr is on the field, need to play as if she isn't on the field because what that does is actually create space for themselves because Sam Kerr is going to drag one or two players each time she's on the field. Right? If the opposition realises that they actually have to mark space or other players, and, you know, that might actually ironically free up Sam Kerr to actually do what she needs to do or what you would like to see her do on the field. I don't know what your thoughts are about that, Nathan. Look, I can echo a lot of the thoughts that you've gone through there and at the risk of going over familiar ground, I think for the large part, the substitutions had me tearing my hair out at times during this tournament, or lack thereof. Uh, I was screaming out for chids at pretty much every single game at one point or another. I agree with you. And when she did come on in the two games that she did, she was effective. More so in Nigeria than against Sweden, but still effective. And leads me to ask the question why we didn't see her more often. There's a few other players that go into that same bracket. And the line over the last couple of years was that we need to build depth for the World Cup, we need more players in the stable that are able to be relied upon and called upon. What was the point of all that depth building then if they weren't going to get used at this tournament? It seems as though that did work out in the case of Claire Hunt and to a lesser extent, Cooney Cross, two young players that have really taken to this national team like a duck to water and all things going well, you would expect them to be a part of this setup for the next decade or near enough to it. I think beyond the substitutions and the personnel, the tactical plans, I think they de- at times they devolved into rudimentary, mm-hmm. particularly when Sam Kerr was on the field, mm-hmm. where when she came on against France and when she played against England and even the third place playoff, it got to a case of, okay, I've got the ball, get it to Sam and hopefully she can do something. It's now that's crazy. partly on the players, mm-hmm. but it's mostly on the dugout. You have to build a tactical plan of what you're going to do when you have your best players available, surely, beyond just launch it to it and launch it to her and see if something can happen. Coming into this tournament, there was a bit of a question mark about Mary Fowler, how she fits into this team. Tony G and the coaching staff hadn't really worked out a way to get Sam Kerr and Mary Fowler into the same side. And when Sam Kerr was made unavailable for the first phases of the tournament, Hand was forced to get Mary Fowler in the team. And what we saw was the buildings of a strong side, Canada game in particular. Sam Kerr comes back in and it just evolves again. And I don't think we saw the best of Mary Fowler with Sam Kerr on the pitch at all. I don't think we saw the best out of pretty much any of the players on the field when Sam Kerr was on the pitch. That's not a slight on Sam Kerr. It comes from the dugout and how you go about your football, what you do with the ball, how you move it around, patterns of play and so on. For mine, reaching a semi-final and taking fourth place is not a sackable offence by any means, but plenty of the questions I have from the dugout, especially when you consider the plan B when things aren't working against Nigeria and against some of the teams in the later stages, the plan B didn't work or it just didn't exist at all. Mm. And we saw it in the semi-final against England when there was a reshuffle of the personnel mm. and it turned out to be a reshuffle with Catley, Carpenter and Hunt. Mm-hmm. They had no idea where to play. They had no idea who was mm. in what position. Mm. And I don't know if the camera picked it up, but they mm. swapped positions about five times before they eventually set it on where they were supposed to be. We saw Car- I saw Carpenter come over to left centre-back mm. and Catley go on the right side of Ellie Carpenter at times. Mm. So the, when there was a shift, the players didn't really know what they were doing. They eventually sorted it out and it led to no avail anyway. But for mine, overall, I don't think Tony Gustafsson deserves to get the bullet, but I don't necessarily think he deserves a renewal beyond his current contract, which is to the end of the Olympics next year. Maybe over the next year, we see some more development and Australia has a great performance in the Olympics and he may deserve to deserve an extension off the back of that. But where I sit right now, I'm looking at other options for Matildas going forward. If Australia finishes top four in the Olympics again, so Tony G's seen the Matildas 
go through to the Olympic semi-final, followed up with the World Cup semi-final, which I think has more gravitas than the Olympics, but nonetheless. And then if another Olympic semi-final birth is achieved by the Matildas, what then? I'd like to see some progression. Right. I think for the Olympics, getting to the semi-final may not be enough. Yeah, look, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. You'd like to see a medal at the Olympics. Are they a medal chance? Look, it just depends on the group that you have. Mind you, it's only 16 teams to at the Olympics. Yes. So it's four groups of four, quarterfinals, semifinals. So it's, yeah, it's it will be, um, the group will be, the group phase will be a little bit harder, I think. But having said that, I agree with you, they should finish top four, at least, and hopefully medal. Now, should Tony G be renewed past the Olympics either way? You seem to think not. I think I agree with you. I think I agree with you. I think we need to have a look and see what's happening in England and Spain and try and learn from that as much as we can. And you've got amazing Australian coaches in the women's game that can do the job, like Montemuro, Oxenby, who's actually been appointed Northern Ireland, um, you know, Northern Ireland coach. So, you know, you've got coaching staff around, you know, your coaches that are working overseas that could do the role. And I think would be- I think also, Laz, if I can jump in here. Yeah, of course. Now, I might be missing something and maybe there's some baggage in the past that I'm unfamiliar with. But Mm. for mine, when it comes to if Football Australia wants an Australian manager to take over the Australian team, as seems to be the case with the men's side, Montemura seems to be an obvious choice. I think Ante Juric should be in the reckoning as well. I agree with you there. For what he's done with Sydney. Mm -hmm. Has been fantastic. Mm -hmm. In terms of overseas, I don't necessarily think, unless you can get the ungettable Serena Wiegmann, which is I don't think it's possible, mm. then you may as well go for, if you can attract, Joe Montemurro. And look, that's something between Football Australia and Joe Montemurro, but I would think he'd be up for it. At some point, maybe after Juventus, or maybe mm. after the um, after the European journey that he's, that he's been on with Arsenal and then Juventus. Yeah, possibly. Why not? Why not approach him? Why not? I think he can. I think he can. Why not? What have you got to lose? The worst he's going to say is no. Mm. Or the best thing that he could do is recommend you to someone and say, I think you should go this way. And then maybe, uh, you know, if the stars align, we can do it in the future. Because this next World Cup cycle for me is vital. Because I agree. I agree. It probably will be the last one with Sam Kerr. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole host of other players as well. Steph Catley's in that group that the next World Cup may be their last. Yep. And yes, we always hear about the next generation coming through is brilliant and can achieve new heights. But as we sit right now, it is potential and potential often goes unrealized. What you've got right now is a great team that I think is capable of something fantastic, mm-hmm. something brilliant, yep. more than fourth place. Yep. And if Tony Gustafsson leaves his current post at the end of this tournament or at the end of the Olympics, the next appointment is absolutely vital, particularly with the momentum in the country and in the news and everything else that we've seen in this tournament. The next appointment is vital for the future of the Australian women's national team. Okay. So let's have a look at the depth, right, and the positions that we need to work on. I think we need to find a partner for Claire Hunt because I don't see, you know, Paul Kinghorn has played the last World Cup game. Kennedy wouldn't be much, you know, for much further behind, I, I don't think. So you need to find a central defensive pairing there, right? Um, midfield, you know, with with regard to midfield, I think we need depth. That's where one area we need depth. We've got Cooney Cross, who's going to replace Gorey. Where are other options that we can play? Mm. Right? Uh, our wingbacks, right? Yes, yeah, you mentioned Catley. You know, is uh, Charlie Grant going to be the uh, the the next player in line? Who's behind that? It's Courtney Vine there on the right. Um, you know, so you got Ellie Carpenter, which you know she's young and still be around for a little while. You've also got, um, you know, so then you move into the 
to the attackers and you go, okay, well, Chidiak's only what, 24, 25. Yeah. So he's in front edge, you know, obviously that's the future there with, with Fowler and uh, being only 20 or 21. Who else is behind Sam Kerr when Sam Kerr goes? So I think we need to build depth across the park because you're right, this next cycle is one very important to reinforce the success of this tournament. And we need to realise that we may not get through to the semis the next tournament. But if we play it right, there's no reason why we can't get into the quarters, push for the semis. Yeah. So, and that is a coaching thing all the way through. Now, if Tony G is the man to actually do that, well, great. Okay. He might have a long-term vision if he thinks this this is just the start of the journey. One thing is right that it is. It, it is just the start of it, but it's the start of a new journey. So one cycle has ended, and look, it is a bit. And I don't know if we go from Olympic cycles or World Cup cycles. I think we need to go World Cup cycles. To be fair, I think so as well. Whoever so, gets the next contract for the Matildas, it should be three or seven years mm, beyond the Olympics, mm, not four. Yeah, to get to uh, the twenty twenty eight Olympics, wherever that will end up being. LA. Oh, it's LA. Yeah. Yeah. I think because I was looking this up, Serena Vegan was contracted to 2027, specifically the end of the next World Cup. Mm, mm. Yeah, so correct. England have already made that switch. Yep. That's great. And yes, I think Australia should follow suit on that front. Mm. And that goes back to what we're saying on a pod previously that I think the World Cup sits higher in the pecking order now than an Olympic gold medal in the women's game. Yeah, I agree with you. But we shall see what FA get up to over the next couple of months. And there's going to be a lot of eyes on what happens on governing bodies and administrators mm. in this part of the world for the next couple of weeks. If not, not beyond only, that. If not beyond that, Nathan. Indeed. But uh, on the front of the national team, but also on the front of the domestic game and how to build on this tournament. Mm-hmm. As I think we uh, should spend some time talking about that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's do it. Because the women's game is the focus of the country and has been for the past month. And it's the age-old question. It is something that has been asked in Australian football for years and years and years. How do you translate World Cup eyes into A-League men's stroke women eyes? I think in the case of the women, it's a little bit easier now. I given, agree with you. Given the success of the Women's World Cup and also the environment you know, that's generated at A-League women's games. Now, what is going to serve best? The new, the new eyes that are going to look at it and also the players. Saturday, 3 o'clock in summer is not going to serve anyone. That so has to go. That has to go. Sunday, 3 o'clock in summer has to go. Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. And then throw in midweek games like, you know, during at night, during the, you know, December, January period, right, when people might be able to, you know, access them. But you've got to make it a comfortable experience at for the players primarily, but also the people attending and generate atmosphere. Take it to the smaller boutique stadiums if you want to. The, you know, look, it's great to play at the SFS if you can. But I'm hopeful that we can get crowds in there, right? But make it maybe make it just a small bowl, right? And just you know sit in there. Likewise, you know, um, other stadiums. We need stadiums and we need purpose-built stadiums, all-seater stadiums. With that can cater for 10, 15,000. I think that'll do it and that'll make yep, it a, you know, a great experience. And also, I'd like to see less double headers moving forward. Mm, I agree. I appreciate the initial thought that you stick the men's team and the women's team on at the same venue the same day. Then people might come early to see the first game or hang around, whichever order it goes in. But it doesn't eventuate. Five hours of football is too much. I think to be at the same venue, at the same seat, in the same place, I think it does get a bit too much. And off this tournament, I hope there's enough interest in the women's game that they are able to generate crowds where they don't need to piggyback off the men's game to get 
a good attendance. And I think that might be the case moving forward. Yeah, of I course. Hope so. Yeah, I would hope so. Boutique stadiums are great. Again, it comes back to the, the money question and that's uh, almost an insurmountable hill, but it is something that's needed. Purpose-built stadiums, boutique stadiums, and again, this comes back to government funding. One thing this World Cup has highlighted, Nathan, is that there needs to be investment and resources put to the game locally as far as the grassroots, right, and facilities as far as the girls that want to play have a safe place to go get changed at a local park and play, right? So there's that. The other thing is, Football needs its fair share of funding, right, compared to the other sports in this country. It's been left behind as a poor distant relative comparative to the number of participants that football has, right? And football relies, especially going into the NPL level, on pay-to-play. That needs to be taken care of. Then needs to be addressed. We're not saying don't pay-to-play, but do something to actually make sure that the talent that you're trying to foster and generate and develop and create and attract is able to do so without having to, you know, parents to fork out ridiculous amounts of money to actually give their children opportunity. Thousands of dollars less is unrealistic. Correct. And it's great that this week there was an announcement of $200 million for grassroots women's sport, and it was noted as such women's sport, not women's yeah. football. Well, and that's the thing. What about women's football? Because that is, yep. that's why this has generated, this event has generated that. So, and they announced that at a FIFA fan fest. So mm-hmm. what are you doing for football, Alba? Great for you to, you know, go and put your Matilda scarf on and do all that BS, right? Substance, 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 substance. And we're not going to let off now. That's it. This Now it's a matter of substance and time. And mate, your, the t- your clock is ticking and your time is now. So, Nathan, I don't know what you want to say about that, but it, it is time for real substantial action with meaning and purpose for football. Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's great that women's sport is getting funding, but where's the football funding? How much of that $200 million that was promised is going to football specifically? And as we said just before, the pay-to-play stuff, the amounts that people have to pay to play is ridiculous. And the further that comes down, the better everyone will be in the football sphere. So it is on everyone to, sounds like a little bit of a separate show now, but mm. get in contact with your local members of parliament. Like It yep. is that sort of call to action that football at the grassroots level, both men's and women's or boys and girls, mm. needs significant funding. And it's not going to happen by itself. No, that's right. It's They're not going to do it for fun. They're not going to do it out of the goodness of their heart. Mm-hmm. It needs to come from pressure. I think we're going to have to do an episode on this, Nathan. I think, when, I think we do. With the back peg resumes as such. <laughs> but your major takeaways from this wonderful football event that we saw. It's just incredible. This tournament has been, I think, when you look at it holistically, this tournament has been better than anyone could have expected. Even the most optimistic of Australians coming into this tournament, it has ticked every single box. Tick. You've got an exception. No, I was going to say, FIFA did very well to engage Culture Pulse and I'm not pissing in the pocket of Culture Pulse, right? They're a great organisation and they do really good work with very clever people uh, who know how to engage the right types of uh, crowds and audiences and tick there because that helped substantially the uh, the whole atmosphere around this tournament. Case in point is the Colombian Games. 
I don't think there's a better example than that. The noise that was generated by the Colombian supporters at this tournament is something unlike anything I've ever heard in Australian sport before. That noise, that vibrancy in the grounds is football. And perhaps we can see something in the future in that similar vein. And you're right to point out FIFA engaging with cultural bowls. They did a great job for the Asian Cup and they've done a great job here for this Women's World Cup in 2023. And look, FIFA cop a lot of stick and a lot of it is warranted, but they definitely know how to put on a tournament. That's for sure. That's for sure. And yeah, yeah, oh, I agree. I think they even underestimated themselves though, because there was the day after the quarterfinals, we actually went down to Darling Harbour to go to the fan fest and it was closed. And the amount of people that remarked yesterday when we were there that, hey, they came when it was closed at all. So the fan fest should have actually been at Tumbalong Park in particular. I don't know about the rest of the other fan fests around the country, but the, the one here in Sydney should have actually been left open for direct, you know, even on long co- uh, competition days. Yeah, I think that's something they can take from this tournament moving forward, that there is interest there, not just on match day, not just on match time either. It's something that could have been open for much longer. And maybe it's a consideration for the food side of things or I don't know if there's some sort of reason as yeah, to why it yeah. wasn't open for longer. But yeah. in any case, mm. I think FIFA are blown away by the by the interest, by the support, both here and across the ditch. Imagine, imagine now if they get a, if we do happen to get a men's world cup. Well, you brought it up. I think we should mention it. Okay. That is the talk this week that apparently Australia is going to be bidding for the 2034 Men's World Cup in connection with who remains to be seen because we can't host one by ourselves. It would have to be you New need, Zealand again. You need somewhere in the region of 16 stadiums of 40,000 seats as a minimum per FIFA's current requirements. I think after the next Men's World Cup, that'll reduce to 30,000, mm-hmm. which is a bit more palatable, but I still don't think you can get to 16 win in just Australia. Maybe even with New Zealand, it's a bit of a stretch. And that's something that's come out off the back of that announcement, a joint bid with Australia, New Zealand, and some Southeast Asian countries, be it Singapore and Malaysia. I think Indonesia's off the table, but yeah. some connection with Southeast Asian countries as well, which... is feasible. It's feasible. I'll jump on board if that's what it takes. But I also think a Southeast Asian bid with the likes of Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, Cambodia, etc., is a more nicely put together bid package because flying from Auckland to Singapore takes nearly 10 hours. Yep. It's it's almost like that Spain, Morocco, Ukraine bid. That doesn't make sense as much as no, having was, New Zealand and Singapore was, in the same yeah, tournament doesn't Spain, make sense. Portugal and Ukraine, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was the one. It's just the feasibility, and I think we would need Dockland Stadium, and that means you need to go and ask the AFL because they yeah, own the ground. They won't do it. Um, and yeah, what what they're going to have to do is extend uh, Amy and actually build a another purpose-built rectangular stadium in Melbourne. So, but, but the thing is with that, Laz, outside of a World Cup, it wouldn't get used that much because unless it's replacing Amy hang altogether, hang Melbourne is the sporting capital of Australia, Nathan. <laughs> Uh-huh. The thing is, if you build a 40,000-seat stadium in Melbourne, the Storm aren't going to fill it. The Rebels certainly aren't going to fill it. And Melbourne City aren't going to. And Melbourne Victory, at their peak, could get somewhere in the region of 40, but certainly not week on week. That's the question. Yep. Getting yep. stadiums that have use beyond a specific mm. tournament. And I would also like to throw in there upgrades for Newcastle. Yeah. Look, if you I, build stands yeah. on the ends, then you can get yeah. that up to 30,000, 35,000. And yeah. that can be a part of a, a package. Yeah. But really, it is a case, again, of government funding. Yeah. This this thing will need to be revisited. But I think that um, Australia and New Zealand should actually push for it and do a joint bid. And 
I think we'll do a great, a stellar job, and fair for know that now. And so, apparently we're also going for the 2029 Club World Cup. Yes, that's right. James Johnson did announce that. And the 20, 2026 Women's Asian Cup. Mm, yes. I think now that for a football mm. tournament, everyone knows how good of a job we can do. Mm. We should be in the reckoning for anything that comes up now. Yes, I understand it's a big expense to put a bit together and you need to run your costings and put the fields out to see if there is appetite to host each specific tournament in this part mm. of the world. But I think off the back of this tournament, there's going to be a lot of goodwill from those away from these shores to put more tournaments down here. Yeah, I agree. I agree. What else was your takeaway? We can talk about on-the-pitch stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, I actually was going to say the 32 teams, I think, was a success. Yes, very much so. Uh, everyone, whether they went out in the groups or not, or beyond, they certainly put their best foot forward. No team was embarrassed. There was no ridiculous scorelines that we may have seen in previous iterations. Nothing that gets up to, say, the 10s or more that we have seen in the past. And it goes to show that women's football is coming on leaps and bounds. And there was a lot of doubts over whether there was enough de- quality depth to get to 32 national teams. But lo and behold, there certainly has been. And pretty much they're all in the fight. Some teams, obviously, lesser quality than others. But mm. by and large, every team was in the fight for the games. And that bodes well for the future because even in the past, you see some teams arrive at a World Cup and they get battered, they go home, and it's disappointing. But four years' time, eight years' time, they come back and they're actually a decent team because they've been able to get tournament experience and the money that comes through the World Cup showing goes through development and yep, so on and so on. Yep. And they actually turn out to be a good side that uh, can look beyond just happy to be at a tournament. I think you might see that for a couple of the sides that went home in the groups. That's come four years' time or eight years' time. We're not speaking as if they're just happy to be here. We're speaking, can they do something? Yep. And that's been a fantastic thing for me at this tournament, that countries like Portugal mm-hmm. were a whisker away from getting out of the group. Yeah. Countries like Morocco got out of the group. Yeah, yeah. And Jamaica. Yeah, that Jamaica story. Amazing stories. Yeah, yeah. that Jamaica story. Right? And that's probably the last thing I want to touch on is the related to what you said about the depth of countries and the quality of football because the quality was was definitely there nobody could dispute that right um so there was no issue there i think but i mean the people want to compare it to the men's game you can't it's a different kettle of fish right women's football is different to men's football just accept it you know just admire it for what it is because it's a great game played in the right way so there needs to be investment and opportunity in with regards to play development and coaching and the way that some of the federations and highlighted by this jamaica story right it's time that the federations actually took you know women's football seriously if they haven't already okay to have a, a national team compete qualify and compete in a world cup and have to rely on the gofundme page to get here is laughable i know a movie that's a bit like that <laughs> jamaican too it's the same it's the same kind of, yes so but it's quite seriously it's laughable and FIFA needs to intervene with regards to that as well. But it's incumbent on all federations to actually invest in their female talent. And also, FIFA should say, listen, you want to be a, a member association of FIFA? Show us what you're doing with regards to your, to your women's football program. Show us what you're doing in regards to your men's football program. Are they on a par as far as investment is concerned? Or what is the threshold? There has to be a commitment to women's football, right? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen the opportunities and the return that investment in women's football brings at this tournament. And I think that's a nice takeaway to end on, Les, that we can clearly see that the women's game is much more than it's been given credit for in the past. And I think we can all look forward to a a bright future for for the game, particularly on the women's side, both here and around the world. And, Laz, 
as we are wrapping up this episode and this series, I want to thank you in particular because maybe before the Tokyo Olympics, I didn't really pay much attention to women's football. It's not that I was against it, but I just didn't watch it that much in the same way that I don't watch some random countries' football. And it's through this podcast and your insistence that we cover the women's game that I paid more and more attention to it. And I've been able to enjoy this tournament as much as I have. So I want to thank you. You too, kind And um, the interest that we've shown in this tournament in our series and leading up to it is absolutely driven by you. So thank you for uh, opening my eyes to it. No, I, I didn't realise I had that effect on you. And, and you've, I'm, no, I'm quite humbled by that. And thank you. No, thank you very much. Um, look, it's a great game. Um, I'm you know happy to just play a small small part in it, you know, um, inadvertently, right? Um, so you know, and when you see uh, my daughter's team, you know, and all the the girls that play in that team and being inspired by these great athletes, it's it's heartwarming actually. So no, it, it was really good. And look, I just hope that everyone enjoyed the football. It was a fantastic tournament. It was a fantastic event. It was an absolute honour and privilege to actually have this. Uh, on our shores. I want to thank you, Nathan, for all your work and, and commitment to it. And it's, um, you know, and what you do for our podcast because it's absolutely brilliant. I want to thank the listeners for their participation and interest and feedback and, and listenership. Um, yeah, it was an absolute um, great thing to be a part of, actually. So I want to thank yeah, all. Yeah, I can all, echo you know. that as well. I can echo that and yeah. say thank you to everyone who's listened to the Making Wave series. And over the course of the last month, we went past another milestone in terms of the, the listenership. We went past the 2000 mark for total streams. Awesome. And we want to thank each and every one of you who's listened to one episode or been a supporter the entire way through. Thank you very much. And we look forward to going back to uh, similar backpack episodes to what we're doing prior to the World Cup. Yeah. And yeah. it should be a lot of fun. And we'll definitely um, definitely have more than a passing interest in women's football going forward as well, that's for sure. But in particular, locally as well. So, so and, and in no particular order, we want to thank all the guests that we had on the Making Waves series. We had Olaf Lund from Sweden. We had, um, or who, who else did we have? We had Carl Bond from the United States. We had uh, Maylis Leveron from France. We had Susie Rapp from England. Uh, we had Joe Brennan, who helped us with the Spain with the Spain preview. We had Anna Green from New Zealand from the football firm. We also had, I think I've missed someone, but that's okay. We'll get to it in a minute. Who, who did I miss? You missed uh, those from the Group B preview. Benedict Rose, Maliki Colkin, and Cecilia Amorogbe from Ireland and Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And of course, the one and Adam Flores. Adam Flores. Who's seen ample airtime across this World Cup. Pretty much every single time the Matildas got on TV, I saw Fatima in the stands, sometimes with a drum, sometimes singing her lungs out, and it's great to see. Yeah, it was great to see uh, and follow the Matildas active uh, page on Instagram as well. Great. So, um, yeah, so hopefully they, they got around the pot as well, which is good. Thank you to all our guests. Thank you to those who have been listening to this Making Wave series. Thank you to you, Laz, for everything that you bring to this pod, and it's a pleasure to talk to you whenever we do. So Likewise, I can't man. wait to uh, get Likewise. stuck into what we uh, get up to from here. And <laughs> That's it's right. Been, it's been a... <laughs> We'll probably kick off with an up late later in the week. Yes. <laughs> On that note, uh, thanks again, Nathan, and take care all. Stay safe and talk soon. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>